Welcome back to the Tactical's Podcast, where everything we talk about is of the game and for the game of football. Today's one going to be a short one. It's basically going to be a review of the Champions League fixtures that took place over the week, the most important ones. Basically, I'm going to be covering first the Real Madrid-Liverpool one, then I'm going to be covering the Bayern Munich-PSG, then the Manchester City-Borussia Dortmund game. I already gave my preview of these games. Basically, it wasn't a preview. It wasn't me predicting the games, but rather it was giving a little... Back, tactical background of each team and how they might play and their, uh, their strengths and weaknesses and how one team may try to exploit the other team's weaknesses. And if you want to go check that out, I think it's episode number three or rather it might be episode number two. I don't know. Check it out. I don't know which episode it is. Anyway, so let's so let's uh, crack on. Uh, first uh, game we're going to talk about is the game between Real Madrid and Liverpool. One thing I mentioned about Liverpool is that one of their major weaknesses is their defensive line because there is a lack of experience in that defensive line. And the last thing you want to do is have a, uh, a lack of experience in the defensive line playing a high line. You don't want, uh, what's the word, inexperienced defenders playing a high line. And the the other thing you don't want to you don't want to do is give space to players like Tony Cruz because Tony Cruz will notice that you're playing a high line and will try and play balls in behind for players like Vinicius Junior to latch onto and score and that's exactly what happened. Actually, I was actually a bit confused as to why Liverpool took this approach because it didn't make any sense because normally when you think about Liverpool for the past four years when you think about Liverpool in your head you think instantly press they press they're aggressive they always press. But in this game, it seems that something just didn't click. I don't know. Maybe maybe Klopp was wary of Real Madrid and he didn't want them to get exposed when they pressed high. I don't know what he was, but for for majority, for a portion of the game, Liverpool were extremely passive. And the last thing you want, you can't be passive in terms of your defensive approach and field a high line. It doesn't work. You have to press the opposition, especially play an opposition with players like Tony Cruz and Luka Modric. You have to press them to prevent them playing over your high line. And with that lack of experience in your high line, you personally, I believe you cannot rely on a high line. I would have preferred possibly Liverpool to drop deeper and play on transition. That may have been a better option. Basically, what Real Madrid opted to do for most of the game is rely on a 2v1 on Trent Alexander-Arnold. Basically, Mendy would push forward alongside Vinicius, and those two would just overload Arnold for most of the game. And Arnold wasn't really, wasn't really helped in terms of support. Naby Keita, who started the game, wasn't really, what's the word, aware of his defensive responsibilities. Many a time he would drift towards ball side and just forget about the numerical disadvantage on Arnold's side. Arnold would 
kept on being overloaded on his own side without support. And honestly, I think that was one of one of the main reasons why Naby Keita was taken off. Klopp mentioned, cited it was a tactical decision as to why Keita was taken off just before half-time. And I believe that was one of the main reasons many people were talking about it, is the fact that Cater wasn't really contributing defensively. Now, the other debate people might can, can, might talk about is why did he bring Thiago? Thiago isn't any better. Thiago is better at, um, is better at creating from the back. But at the same time, like I said, one of the main strengths or for Real Madrid in this game was that overload on Trent. Even if you look at the first goal, you'll notice how Trent doesn't know who to close down. He initially goes wide to close down Mendy because Vinicius drops a little bit, but then Vinicius faints and turns and runs in behind and Trent just can't catch, catch up to him. But the main issue for me, like I said, is that Liverpool's block initially allowed Tony Cruz to drop out, receive, turn and play the ball. You can't allow a player of that calibre to do that. We, we saw what, how much it costs you because a player like that will play, it can just pinpoint a pass out of nothing. No one expected Tony Cruz to play that ball. And more, imp more importantly, and more shockingly, no one expected Vinicius to control it so well and score from it. <laughs> but it happened. You just can't take the risk against a team like Real Madrid with players like Tony Cruz and Luka Modric building from the back. You just can't do it. it even the same thing came from the second goal. Again, we saw... The 2v1 imposed on Trent. Trent mistimes, miscues a header. It comes to Asensio and Asensio scores. Again, the same problem. And again, I did not understand why Liverpool went for this approach. It made zero sense. Because whenever you play a high line, one thing you have to make sure you do is you have to press the back line. Especially against a team that has ball playing midfielders or centre-backs that can actually play long balls over your block and have threatening plays in behind, like Vinicius Jr. Now, it wasn't all bad for Liverpool. I just want to say their goal was actually quite good and it sort of, it sort of gives us a little hope as to how highly contest contested, I think the word is, the second leg's going to be. I think it's not over yet. I do believe Liverpool can get back in this. But it's a question of how many goals Liverpool will concede, how defensively solid they'll be in the second leg, whether Klopp will actually adjust their pressing system to accommodate Real Madrid, but also how fluid their attack is. Because one thing that Liverpool's attack wasn't in this game, it wasn't fluid at all. It wasn't a fluid at all. There was a lot of there were a lot of miscued passes or mistimed passes. Normally Liverpool is so fluid vertically, they build the ball up so quickly. But it just wasn't meant to be in this game, to be honest. And Real Madrid, despite the fact that they sometimes pressed high, they mainly set up in a 4-1-4-1, but it was extremely man-orientated. And it's not the first time we've seen this from Real Madrid. 
like let's assume that forward drops that I don't know how deep the center back at the center, Real Madrid center back just follows him wherever he goes and that's something that can be easily exploited if you just know how to how to move your plays around you know it just takes a little bit of rotation and sport and understanding space space occupation and exploitation a little bit of dynamics to maybe like maybe manipulate the Real Madrid defense to move around so you can create space to move into and build your attack from. And that's basically how Liverpool's goal came to be. If you look at the build-up to Liverpool's goal, you'll see that Real Madrid's midfield was absolutely barren. There was literally no one in midfield. The reason being is that they were too busy following players around. And that's one of the main reasons as to why I hate man orientation is because you cannot you can't cannot account for every one v one on the pitch with ten players ten outfield players because if one player manages to evade his marker then that's that the press is broken you know now I understand Real Madrid's approach is not purely man orientation but if they come up against Liverpool in the second leg and Liverpool know how to rotate how to move off the ball and exploit Real Madrid's man orientation all it takes for instance like let's assume a forward drops right and the centre-back follows him instantly another forward can just run into the space left by the centre-back Liverpool was so good at doing that two years ago right so I don't know how reliable this Real Madrid man orientation is. It's already cost them two games this season, both of which came against Shakhtar. Many people wonder why they lost to Shakhtar. That was the main reason. It's because Shakhtar knew how to exploit the man orientation that Real Madrid relied on defensively. So there's still a lot to play for in the second leg. It's, it's far from over. I do believe Liverpool can still qualify. All they have to do is just fix their defensive approach so as to provide sufficient cover for their defensive line, maybe drop a little deeper, in my personal opinion, concede space in behind, defend a little bit. Like I said, defend it in front of your goal. That way, Real Madrid cannot rely on balls over the top to pacey players in order to break Liverpool down. At the same time, you still have really potent attack, especially with the fr with uh, front players like Hamad Salah, like Sadio Mane, like Roberto Firmino, who just came back from injury. I think he came off the bench against Real Madrid. And Diego Jota. So there's still a lot to play for. All Liverpool need is a 2-0 win at Anfield and they will be through. You know, the most important thing is that they don't concede a goal and then... And who knows which team might qualify. So moving on from there, we're going to talk about the game between Bayern Munich and PSG. Now this was one that I was really looking forward to. Because one thing I mentioned in my preview for this game is that despite the fact that Bayern are actually one of the, if not the best team in the world at the moment, one of their main frailties is their defensive line. And the fact that they deploy a high line. And one thing I also mentioned is that a pacey player can exploit Bayern Munich's defence. And it just so happens that PSG do have that kind of player in Kylian Mbappe. And he showed his quality on the night against Bayern Munich's 
defensive line. Pochettino got his tactics on point, to be honest, in this game. He knew he knew exactly where Bayern's weakness was, and he exploited it. He left Mbappe high. He didn't really give him a lot of defensive responsibilities. Mbappe even, I think he admitted that in, the, in a post-match interview, is that the coach wanted me to test Bayern Munich's defensive line. He wanted Mbappe to stay high and test them. And it paid off many a time because, like, Neymar would... Uh, what Peugeot, before I get into Neymar, what Peugeot looked to do, their approach was to defend more uh, a little deeper in a 4-4-2 and then uh, rely on attack transitions and counter-attacks to create chances and play balls in behind to Mbappe. And we all know that Mbappe has the pace and he has the skill to overcome defenders or to get past defenders. And like we, like we saw, it worked. It worked really well. The only downside to it is the number is the loss of Marquinhos in the first half for PSG, but they managed to hold on. It wasn't as bad as I entail it, but also Bayern suffered a couple of injuries. That might the re, one of the reasons might have been the weather. It was snowy, so there's a larger risk of injury. You know. The, the slippery ball and all that. But, but I think Bayern's injuries were... I don't think they were more significant, but they were as bad as PSG's single injury in Marquinhos, who's a massive asset or a key to them defensively. Bayern lost Goretzka to injury. At, at the time, I honestly thought it was a tactical change. I think uh, I, I thought that Flick was taking him off to like push Alaba in midfield because basically when Goretzka came off and Davies was brought on, Davies was put left back, Lucas Hernandez was moved to centre back and David Alaba pushed forward as the second pivot. And then when Sule came off, Boateng came on, that was a like for like, but I didn't really understand that one, but I do suspect Sule came off because he was injured. So yeah, this one's a little bit more difficult for Bayern. It's going to be a challenge for them, to be honest, to see to see whether they can get back in it because the next game's at the Parc de Prince. They have to win 1-0, or 2-0 rather, at least 2-0 to qualify. Also, there's the question of how many goals they'll concede, because I do believe that, obviously, it doesn't take two people to, to, to talk about it. The fact that PSG are probably going to go, go for, for the same approach in the Parc des Princes, seeing as it works so well in the first leg, and especially since now they're defending a lead. So they'll probably drop back, be a, little, be a lot more conservative. I don't know how... How capable they are of enduring, especially especially if Bayern gets Lewandowski back from injury and Gnabry back from uh, COVID. If he recovers in time from COVID-19 to be back in contention for this game, I don't know whether PSG will be able to adopt the same approach defensively for another 90 minutes. So, like I said, it's all about the the clinicality. And that was something that was missing from Bayern in the first leg. They created so many chances with their incredible attack, but they just couldn't convert, 
convert them. I saw so many people on social media after the game sending like or posting on their stories like the statistics that Bayern had 20 shots, so they were better and they deserved to win. All right, but they didn't convert them. If the game was built on shots, then Bayern would have won the game. But it's not built on shots, it's built on goals. And according to the outcome, PSG scored three goals and Bayern scored two. Right? Regardless of how many shots either side had, what one can conclude from these statistics that are being shared is that Bayern were not clinical enough and PSG were because PSG had fewer chances, but they converted them. And even they could have scored even more if, if um, Bappe hadn't fluffed that one-on-one. Another another point, another player I want to praise is, is Nabas. He honestly was so crucial for PSG and the fact that they didn't concede as many as they should have. Oh, yeah, he but he was he was he was a starting goal to be honest. He was so good. He stopped a lot of chances from the Bayern attack. Final match I want to talk about is the game between Manchester City and Borussia Dortmund. This was an interesting one, to be honest, because in the preview, in my preview of these different teams, I mentioned Dortmund's defensive frailties, but honestly, they they like they proved me wrong. They were actually really good defensively against Manchester City, and they were actually very unlucky to not get a draw out of it. Like I said, it's a game of goals. They lost in the end, but they were very unlucky, as Bayern were very unlucky not to convert any of their chances. Dortmund were very unlucky to concede the way, to concede in the 90th minute, I think it was. It was in the dying minutes of the game. Anyway, Dortmund's approach was very good, I think. They set up in a 4-5-1 or 4-1-4-1 against the ball. I think it was Chan, who was the CDM, who was the lone pivot in front of the four. And it worked well. They they pressed on certain triggers, especially on back passes. Then the front five, is it five? Yes, front five would push up and be quite aggressive in their press. They would rely on a lot of transition play to, and they were somewhat a bit, yes, they were very direct in their, in their attacking play, Dortmund. That's obviously justifiable because you're not going to see much of the ball against Manchester City. Manchester City didn't change much in their structure. They started off with the inverted, this ever so famous inverted fullback, Cancelo, next to Rodri. Makeshift back three, Walker stayed back, Cancelo inverted. The rotations up front, the implementation of the false nine with Bernardo Silva. Sometimes Foden would take his place. De Bruyne would take his place. Constant rotation, the high and wide wingers. Yeah, so it was a rotation between Phil Foden, Kevin De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva. Sometimes Bernardo Silva would come to Phil Foden's side. That would allow Phil Foden to like push up sometimes in that false nine position. Or there was a, it was a rotation. That's that's the that's Guardiola's specialty is that like the, the rotations and the triangles between his players. Sometimes even you'd see possibly Gundogan out wide or whoever, you know. But like I said, that's the specialty and that's what characterises Guardiola's sides. It's that aspect of total football where you do not necessarily have a player confined to a single position. 
A player I want to praise so so much for his performance in this game was Phil Foden. He was exceptional, and it's ridiculous to be honest. You're seeing players like Erling Haaland and Phil Foden, 20 years of age, delivering such exceptional performances. Erling Haaland's assist for Marco Royce's goal is I, I don't know how to explain it. It doesn't make sense in terms of dynamics or in terms of player. In terms of balance, I do not know how he managed to play that pass so cleanly. Um, also, he was Haaland was a threat throughout, especially when he's being played in behind. I, rem I remember when he when he knocked who was it, Ruben Diaz over. It made me laugh so hard to be honest. He's a joke, Erling Haaland. And whichever team he goes to after Dortmund, I know he's gonna he's gonna do so well with them. I just hope he chooses the right team. There, there have been rumours of what his agent has been doing. I don't really like what his agent has been doing, but it's I'd say it's necessary, like just to put pressure on Dortmund to sell Haaland possibly this summer, despite the fact that they agreed that Haaland would stay one more season and he'd have a release clause next season but you know I guess some people can't be patient or can't wait anyway um, again there's a lot to play for in the second leg I think this game was at the Etihad so so Dortmund have gone away goal if they manage to win 1-0 on their turf I'm not sure if it is going to be on their turf because of course I remember there's a travel ban imposed on on, uh, I'm not too. I, I'm not sure. I'm just thinking now whether the game's going to be played at the Etihad or not, or rather, is going to be played at the uh, Signal Iduna Park or not. But anyway, if Dortmund managed to implement the same approach and maybe get a goal somehow and hold on to a decent result like that, maybe a one nil. So that. That could really be in their favour. But at the same time, it also involves holding on to the result against Manchester City, who have one of the best attacks in the world at the moment. They're 27 unbeaten out of 28. So it's a big ask. <laughs> but I don't know. Dorman proved they, they can handle it in a way in the first leg, but I don't know if they can manage to do it in the second leg as well. It's going to be an interesting one, to be honest. All three of these games were really interesting to watch. And honestly, I can't wait for the return legs. I just want to mention something. Some people may say, like, some of the listeners may ask me why I didn't comment or watch the Chelsea-Porto game. It's, honestly, I couldn't be bothered. Watching three games on their own was enough for me. But also... Like, I watched the Bayern Munich PSG game on the night, and I also watched Real Madrid Liverpool game on the night, and then I rewatched the Manchester City Dortmund game after. And like I said, I just couldn't be bothered to watch the Chelsea Porto one, you know. But from what I saw on the on the app. That's all I can talk about because I didn't actually watch the game. Porto went for the same defensive approach as they normally do a 4-4-2. It was zone-oriented. 
probably they relied a lot on transitions. I can't be too sure, though. Chelsea went for their three at the back, regular 3-1-4-2 or 3-4-1-2, rather, or 3-4-2-1. And basically, they managed to break down Porto's block and score, I assume. That, that's all there is to it. I expected a fight from Porto in a way, maybe like hold on to nil-nil, maybe, or one-nil. But it wasn't meant to be, I guess. But again, you never know what might happen in the second leg. So there's a lot to look forward to. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, see you in the next one.